0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Useri, and I'm happy to welcome Stefan Pastis back to the program today. Stefan is best known as the writer and artist for the wildly successful daily comic strip, Pearls Before Swine. The latest collection of strips, Pearl Seeks Enlightenment, was recently published by Andrews McNeil Publishing. Stefan also writes novels for all ages, but the publisher says they are great especially for middle schoolers. His Timmy Failure series was successful, even spawning The Major Motion Picture. Timmy Failure, Mistakes Were Made. The Troubletown books followed in 2021 and 22, and his new novel, appropriate for middle-grade readers and older, is entitled Looking Up, and it's published by Aladdin, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Stefan, your new book, Looking Up, is from the point of view of a young girl named Saint. How did she get this impressive name?
1: She was named for the New Orleans Saints, the football team in the town where she lives. New Orleans is sort of a second home to me, so that's why I wanted to do it.
0: When you thought, I'm going to name her Saint, did you have any reservations of naming her kind of an unconventional name?
1: Yeah. I don't know if I'd say reservations. To me, it's sort of exciting. In fact, that was the title of the book originally. It was just called Saint. And when I describe it to people, I still describe it as saint. I still say saint. But there was some talk about possible confusion. Like, was it religious in nature? And then I'd have to say, no, she's named for the football team. So I think it was my combo of my agent and publisher that wanted to change it. So ultimately, we changed it to looking up just more of a positive title. But yeah, if I could have, I would have not only had that as their name, I would have had it as the book title.
0: I remember when we talked before about one of your Timmy Failure books, a lot of the titles for the chapters were kind of puns on song lyrics or song titles. And so I think something like Saint No Mountain High Enough would have been great (laughs) (laughs) for this, but they're just regular (laughs) puns. It seems like in this one.
1: Oh my God, if there's a sequel, I'm using that. I'm stealing (laughs) that from you. (laughs) That's really good.
0: As the book opens up, she's on a rescue mission. Who is she saving?
1: She is trying to save a pinata. So when she goes to little kids' parties, she feels for the pinata, that it's being beaten by all the other kids. So she makes it her life's mission to (laughs) jump into the middle of the kids, grab the pinata, and flee. And she keeps a collection of them. So I just like that idea. I like the idea of a character with a heart so big that they wanted to protect even the inanimate objects and animals. Yeah, and I think it was also a decent metaphor for her own vulnerability. You know, a piñata is there. It gets attacked by these other kids, and there was something about that I liked, yeah.
0: Well, a piñata is born to be broken. That's Uh, one of its definitions is that it is supposed to be burst apart. and There's the title of the book, too.
1: There's the title of the book, (laughs) too.
0: And while it doesn't seem like we're born to be broken, we all end up that way anyway.
1: Yeah, so true, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I like that metaphor. I hadn't seen anybody use it before, and it was just appealing to me. Yeah, yeah.
0: But it extends to other things that have faces. I mean, there was a, a birthday cake with a gnome decoration on the front of it, and so yeah. she couldn't even stand to see it cut up.
1: Yeah, and the pin the tail on the donkey, she saves the donkey. Yeah to save him from the tax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. no, that's true. She just has this big heart. Yeah, it's true.
0: But she's also self-aware, you know, in comparison with Timmy failure, Timmy was a bit delusional. He defined himself as a success and excellence yeah. and everything. And she realizes she doesn't fit in with kids her age. One of the things that she thinks sets her apart is her soft, malleable hair
1: yeah yeah whenever she wears a hat her hair takes the shape of the hat yeah she's shes sort of both she is delusional in the Don Quixote sense that's why there's a lot of references to that she takes on the task of saving her town you know it's everything's being torn down and gentrified and when it when they take her away her favorite toy store she wants to save it but of course she's a little kid and she really has no power and she can't do anything so in that sense it was like I like the Don Quixote analogy, tilting at windmills, you know, a cause that is a bit delusional. So she has that too, like Timmy. Yeah, so there's some of that. But yes, she is also more self-aware than Timmy. It was interesting to write a book from a little girl's perspective. It was the first time that I had done that. And I think in doing so, I made a character that was more aware, at least emotionally, of her surroundings and the needs of some other people around her. Timmy was pretty clueless as to all of that. But yeah, that was fun for me.
0: So why do you think it's taking you so long to write it across gender?
1: Yeah, because I think, I think the natural evolution, I would imagine, of most writers, first you write what comes the easiest, which is probably just your own perspective. In my head, I was really Timmy. And then it just flows. That's easy. And then I think as you move further in your career, I don't know i'll speak only for myself you want to challenge yourself like what else could i do am i capable of doing that with you know changing the sex or whatever so i wanted to see if i could do it so for me that was sort of a personal challenge like the next step i guess my growth as a writer i don't know if i've succeeded or failed but i always like to try i don't want to do the same thing over and over Of course, I've done the same comic strip for 22 years, but I try to keep that interesting to me. But the books are a chance to really stretch. Like I'm doing this book right now that's completely different than anything. It's this travel book, kind of like a book of David Sedaris type essays, just to make people laugh, but based only on my travels, part of the reason I've been traveling the country so much. So again, I'm doing it for the same reason I did Saint, something totally new that I've never tried. Can I do it? Or the Timmy failure movie, can I write a movie? I don't know, let me try. That's how I keep it interesting for me. I just wanna see what I can do. I'm not afraid of failing, I fail all the time. Yeah, that's fun for me.
0: Well, I think it was Paul Thoreau I heard said about his travel writing that you want things to go wrong when you're traveling, especially if you're writing about it because it gives you something to write about.
1: So funny you say that because if I turned the thing you would see there are 16 Thoreau books all in a row. I think I've read every single one of his, not the fiction, but the nonfiction. Of course, he's not trying to be funny, but it was interesting to see how he did it. But also, more specifically to your question, so when I do these travels, I put myself in situations where things could go wrong, where it's either hopelessly like a boring or crazy or out of the way place. Like I was recently in Singapore, and I went into this really nice Chinese tea house which is very formal and has a whole process that you have to follow. And I knew I don't listen well, I'm not gonna follow her directions well. And it was, it was as I imagined, a disaster. And so it's sort of funny, it's sort of like cheating it. I am putting myself in places where things will go wrong because I know I'm gonna write about it, but you know, that's it. So yeah, I read just a ton of Sedaris. I read, you know, the Mark Twain travel stuff, Thoreau, all of Bryson. To try to get myself to that place where I can write this book. Anyways, I took a very sideways turn in this question about looking up.
0: As an aside, Richard Zacks Z a c k s wrote a great book about Twain's travels in order to do his big speaking tours, and it's a fabulous book if you you want to check that one out too. I can't remember the name of it, but ah, Richard Zacks. I totally- Oh, that's cool. Because he has this other fabulous ah. book called An Underground Education, just about all sorts of weird and things we probably shouldn't know too much about. <laughs> uh, stuff It's just a collection of hey. weird things from history. That was fabulous too. But
1: oh, I didn't know that.
0: Zach's Twain book is is fabulous. It you know just kind of shows the travels and all the difficulties it presented. And...
1: I've been to Twain's house in Hartford. They let me in to go touch his writing desk, which was beyond the billiards table in this room in his house. I've been to his grave, which is in Elmira, New York. I've been to where he grew up in Hannibal. I've been to the newspaper office where he worked in Nevada when he was out there. Twain is like, he's the ultimate American writer. He's the first American writer, I guess you could say. He showed us what it was to be American. Like We're all in that shadow. And funny. Funny, it's still funny. There's a description in the one where he crosses the country um, to follow his brother to Nevada. I don't know why I'm blanking on the name right it's now. Is it Yeah, there's a description. You know, he's in a coach and they're taking the mail, so they have they're basically sitting on the mail and they're fine. He just smokes his pipe, and this woman comes in, and she won't stop talking. Like she just never shuts her mouth for the whole four days. His description of that is as funny today as it was then. It, it's so hard for comedy to hold up. Like, what an inspiration that is. It's crazy.
0: Similar in being, having a great vocabulary and an impressive way of speaking, Saint is advanced beyond her years in her use of language.
1: Yeah, I never, I never shy away from that because here's my theory on that. When I was a little boy and I started reading Peanuts comic strips, I know that was the first time I had seen, you know, words like grief. Definitely the first time I had seen the word theology or philosophy. First time I'd heard of Beethoven. And as a little kid, that made me either understand it contextually or go to the dictionary. And it was stealth learning. You know, Schultz put that in there and it became stealth learning for me. And I feel I do it for that reason. But I also do it because I don't really write for kids. I write to entertain me. And it turns out when I do it, if I do it well enough, it also appeals to 11-year-olds. So maybe (laughs) I'm 11. So the key to writing a kid's book is to not write a kid's book because you'll find yourself writing down. Kids are much smarter than that. They just don't have your level of experience, but they have your curiosity and more. So what I do is I don't try to write to them. I try to write to make me laugh. That's my theory. I don't know how other people do it, but... um, Nobody wants to be written down to, you know.
0: And with your experience in writing Pearls Before Swine and it being such a condensed, stripped down thing, that writing for children, you don't want purple prose. You want it direct and you want it easily understandable. And you've had a lot of training in doing that.
1: Ah, that's a good point. I think if you're a bit of an iconoclast, if you do a a syndicated comic strip, at least in my generation, you're always asking yourself, can I do this? I think I can. Like I do this Town series where I, I didn't number the chapters in the right order. You know, it'd be chapter one, then 21, then back to six. So I just thought, can you do that? Like I had a Timmy book that had four endings. Like it just ended. He thought it was over. Then there was another, I just tried to do things where when I was a kid, I would open the book and go, Oh, you can't do that. Oh, that's funny. Like I just, I'm still a kid, I guess at heart. I don't know that just, I love stuff like that. I love doing that.
0: Early on the book, she's at a birthday party for her neighbor, Daniel Chance McGibbons, and he is more Dulcinea than he would be Sancho Panza in the story.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true, huh? Because she's she seeks to save him, right? Yeah. In Quixote, that's the woman he seeks to save. Yeah, I think that's true. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's been a couple years since I wrote it, I think that was sort of the idea that she seeks to save someone who doesn't ask to be saved, which which is, I don't know, is kind of funny to me. She looks at him in such a fawning way, but he really doesn't want much to do with her. He's fine without her. So I think that's a Don Quixote trick too. Yeah, there's got to be 30 or 40 Don Quixote references in there. I think in the very beginning of the book, she describes the number of steps it takes to get from her house to her favorite toy store because she's counted. And I think the number is 1605, and that's the year Don Quixote was written. I just do that for myself. It just, I I like to, you know, put those little Easter eggs. If I'm the (laughs) only one who ever catches them, that's fine. It amuses me.
0: But Daniel is very similar in the Saint that he's not really good at enjoying traditional parties.
1: Yeah, they have a lot in common. And he, instead of going to parties, just immerses himself in his creativity and his drawing, which may have a resemblance to one Stefan Pastis. (laughs) (laughs) So so when she finally does see his drawings in the book, I actually filled the drawings on Daniel's wall with some of the characters I've created through the years, like Total from Timmy Failure and Rat and Pig. And yourself? Yeah, myself. Yeah. So both kids have a way of escaping. So they do have that in common.
0: She's very funny and you are as well. An author once told me you have to put a bit of yourself in every one of the characters. And then there's a, a a Greek restaurant owner a little bit later named uh, Sparrow. So it seems like, you know, you spread yourself around pretty good in the book.
1: I do. Everyone in my family owned a restaurant at one time or another. I'm, I'm Greek. Yeah, Sparrow a pretty common Greek name. They call them the Sparrow, I believe, in the book. When I was younger, when I was still a lawyer, I got to meet Schultz and I asked him that question. I said, Which character are you in Peanuts? And he said, I'm all of them. You have to have a little of yourself in every character for that character to really be written realistically. So, you know, he was Charlie Brown, Stoopy. He could be Lucy. He could be Linus. He could be Schroeder. And I think I followed that my whole career. I know there are great writers who can write a great character that's not them. I think of like a Tolstoy who there's no way he could have been 175 different people. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously it's possible, but for me, I think all of them have at least some aspect of me. That's how I do it.
0: Daniel also uses a cane to help him walk, which is another thing that sets him apart from the other kids.
1: Yeah, I sort of learned this thing. I started doing it with Timmy early on. It's kind of a trick stolen from Disney movies, which is if you give the kid a kid or your main character a vulnerability from the start, in Timmy's case, it was no father. In Saints' case, well, it's also a situation like that. In Daniel's case, it's this cane, you know, he can't walk well. I think that's a useful device when you're writing. Or or even like rear window, you think of from the beginning, he can't move. Or Chinatown, he's got his nose cut for almost the whole movie. There's something about it. If you give your lead character a vulnerability, it brings the reader in, allows them to empathize or sympathize with that main character more and root for them more. It's particularly important when I do books, especially Timmy Failure, cause he has some areas of his personality that can be arrogant or put people off. So you really need that vulnerability. Like Rat in Pearls doesn't have it, but he's friends with Pig and that sort of saves His pig is sweet. So you gotta have that thing to root for the character. And uh, for Daniel, it's the cane.
0: Daniel lives with his uncle. And Saint lives with her mother. Her father's not there. And I asked one author, I said, you know, what is it with all the the missing parents in children's stories? And she told me, you have to allow the kids to have some agency. And if they have attentive, present parents, it's really hard for them to get into adventures.
1: Oh, that's so true. And think of Peanuts. He removes the adults altogether. You never see their parents. The kids all have agency. Yeah, it's the key. Not to keep coming back to Peanuts, but there is a sequence of three Sunday strips in the mid-50s where Schultz showed adults. Charlie Brown and Lucy were at a golf tournament and all the fans are adults. It blows your mind. It's so weird. Schultz hated years later that he did it. I don't think he wanted those strips in the books because it did. It took away that agency. But yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. That became a big theme of the Timmy Failure movie we did, agency. Like in the the peak of the movie, Timmy has a teacher with his counselor where they talk about agency. Yeah. I've never thought of it that way, but I can see that must be part of the reason why I do it. I've always thought it was just to sympathize or empathize with the character, but I think you're right.
0: Even though she has this agency and this freedom to do a lot of things a lot of kids wouldn't have the opportunity to do, this freedom comes with a price and that price is loneliness because Saint's mother is working all the time.
1: Yeah, that was definitely me growing up too. My mom was working. I remember I would just come home From school, there'd be nobody home and I would watch Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, The Electric Company. The TV was sort of my companion growing up because both parents worked. So that's probably in there too. You know, it's funny. I think I might have said this to you the last time we talked, but I write in a very odd way. I try to distract myself. Most writers try to focus. I play music at a crazy loud volume. It makes it such that I can't focus. And then I write. I don't do this when I edit, when I edit, the music's off. But what my theory is, is that it allows sort of the right side of your brain or the subconscious to be more present. And the result of doing that could be nonsense, but the result of it also could be a book that is laced with stuff that is floating in your head that you don't normally acknowledge. And as I talk to you and I talk about these different things, like the loneliness, I go, oh yeah, that was my life. But I don't do that on purpose. I don't sit there. I don't diagram something and go, oh, this happened to me when I was eight. I will use this. That that never comes up. Not even a passing thought. But this manner of writing that I do, it does come out. And I look back and I'll go like, oh, that's my grandmother. Oh, yeah, I know who that is. But I'm not really a participant. Sounds very strange and uh, ethereal. But I do think there's something to that.
0: So what music were you listening to?
1: Oh, yeah. I have like 35 playlists on my iPhone, and I cultivate them so it's, you know, there's no show tunes. Like, it tends to be kind of dour, so I'll just flip through one right here. R.E.M., Shane McGowan, Sinead O'Connor, Moby, David Gray, The Mountain Goats, My Morning Jacket, The National.
0: That is some sad dad music right there.
1: Yeah, my friend once described my playlist as music to kill yourself by. (laughs) It still makes you laugh. Um, anyways, but yeah, yeah, it gets me in the in the mood. I just blast that. That's how I've written everything I've ever written, from The Strip to Timmy Failure to Trouble Town to now Looking Up. I have always written it to crazy loud music that would probably distract most people. What most writers ask when I tell them that is, oh, you mean music without words? And I go, no, no, I definitely definitely have words. I'm trying to do the thing you're trying to avoid. I'm trying to distract myself. So crazy way to do it, but that's how I do it.
0: I really identified with Saint because she wants to do an egg toss competition with her mother because she wants to win a shopping spree at her local toy store. And I myself too was a clueless kid and I didn't understand all the financial hardships that my mom, who was a single mom, was facing when I was that age.
1: Me too. Like, I mean... It's funny, I grew up in a town that is wealthy in Southern California, but we weren't wealthy. So I was always an outsider. My dad owned a little liquor store. My mom was a secretary. My dad wasn't home very much. My mom wasn't either, but I think I was more raised by my mom. So she was always behind in the bills, the mortgage, all that stuff. So it was the case in the Timmy books and it's the case with looking up. So Yeah, that came out in this one too. And as to the egg toss, the way it worked in the book is you bring a parent and you and the parent do this. But her mom works, so she can't bring a parent. Yeah, that seemed kind of heartbreaking to me. You know what I think that came from? My best friend who grew up without a dad, I remember he told me one time he was getting ready for a high school football banquet. It was the first time he ever had to put on a tie, but he didn't know how to put on a tie because he didn't have a dad and his mom didn't know how to tie a tie. And it was this moment of realization for both of them, like, oh, this is a moment where a dad would have helped. I think that sort of infused that scene with Saint when she wants to participate in an egg toss, but you need a parent, any parent, but she doesn't have either of them. I think that's where that came from.
0: And because her mom can't be there at the egg toss for she ends up throwing eggs herself.
1: Oh, yeah. Doesn't she just throw them at people?
0: No, at a tree. Oh, oh, She's at a tree, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's how she meets Daniel, if I remember right. But yeah, she has a little bit of a Yeah, she melts down. <laughs> Forgot about that.
0: The toy store in her neighborhood, it's kind of a down-at-the-heels neighborhood, working class folks and a lot of houses in disrepair. But there's a lot of good stuff within walking distance. There's Sparrow's Restaurant and Punch's Toy Farm. And that is one of her most cherished hideaway places to go to.
1: You know what I think I I had in mind. I'm in New Orleans once or twice a year. I'll stay there for just 2 weeks and I stay in the different neighborhoods and I think that was what was in my head. I mean, I very loosely set this in New Orleans. Obviously her name is the name of the football team and the houses that I crudely draw are shotgun houses. But that's what I had in mind. I mean, what's going on in New Orleans with gentrification. The good part is you get these people investing money in homes and they they refurbish these old shotgun homes and they look beautiful. The, the downside is you lose places like in the book, she loses a toy store, but every time a developer comes in and fixes up a house, they kick out someone who's probably the trumpeter in the band or you know, the great cook at that corner place. So the city really loses something. So I think I had New Orleans in mind when I was writing that and the things she was losing. Particularly, there's this area called the Bywater. It's downriver from the corridor. It's happening to it right now. So, yeah, I think that was the backdrop for it. If we ever do a movie, you know, once the strike ends, hopefully that will kick back up. We're pitching it to all the studios. I would love to shoot this in New Orleans. It'd be really fun.
0: Well, I was thinking that in our everyday lives, we enjoy humor for making things a bit lighter, or we use it for a coping mechanism when things are bad. But especially with gentrification and grief in this book, you use the humor as a Trojan horse, To get us to think about these difficult and not fun topics, because if you said, hey, this book's about grief and gentrification, everyone's (laughs) going to go, no thanks, but they get some good jokes and then you've got them tugging at the heartstrings.
1: Yeah, that's really a cool trick, I think, of humor. If you don't overplay it, I learned this with a comic strip. If you're funny most days and then you have one strip that's a little moving, it doubles its impact because you don't see it coming. You just think I'm the clown, you know, just trying to make you laugh every day, but occasionally I'm not. And it's really an advantage because on those days where you're not, it just, yeah, like I say, it doubles the impact. I mean, my goal is always to make kids laugh. And then secondarily, if they get something out of it, or they relate to it even better. And in this case, you know, it's really not about gentrification. That's the metaphor for, she just wants to turn back the clock. And as you find out at the end, it's for other reasons. Yeah, that's really, I would call that the top level plot, you know, but what's at its base is something I would say a lot deeper. So yeah, I'm proud of this book. I don't say that very often. It sounds arrogant. I don't mean to be (laughs) arrogant, but it gets at something kind of deep, but you don't see it coming. I think if I did it right, we'll see for other people to judge
0: there's a concept that i love in the story she goes to a party at old lady trafaldi's house and old lady trafaldi says you are the winged skull of doom head of the skeleton crew decrier of merriment so she's been officially pronounced the buzz killer for the party you know i'd probably go to more parties if i could wear that uh, winged skull of doom <laughs>
1: I like that image of her with that skull on the wing skull. It sort of made me laugh. That, of course, was taken from the New Orleans cruise. You know they have for mm-hmm. Mardi Gras cruise spelled K R E W E for people who don't know. But I like that. Just this little girl at this happy party, walking around with a skull on her head. It just made me laugh. It just kind of that dark sensibility. But yeah, what, did I answer the question? What was the question? There? Sorry, I
0: don't. I don't know if there was a question. I was just saying that oh. I, that I wanted to be a decryer of merriment.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like the phrase too. Thank you. Yeah, that was funny. Decry your embarrassment. I forgot about that one. Yeah, I like that.
0: That describes kind of, you know, kind of like a, a jester character or something like that. There's kind of this safe space in which these transgressions can happen. Yeah. But in the open world, we have these people who are transgressing the people in the neighborhood, and those are called hipsters, and they bring the yeah. plague of gentrification
1: yeah, it's funny, you know I'm thinking about it now. I think part another thing that sort of infused it was this when you're in New Orleans, depending on where you are, when you are, what state you're in, it does seem to be that there's more spirits and souls walking around those streets than living people. I mean, it's so weird how alive the dead are in New Orleans, you know, from the cemeteries, which in how many cities are the cemetery one of the main attraction, and not because there's famous people there just because of what they look like. This girl has to come to terms with a lot of heavy things in life. And with New Orleans and death being so prevalent, this is the city that that should be set in. So I don't think that answered your question, but I think I was focusing on the last question. (laughs) Uh, What was this? I'm one behind. I'm always one behind.
0: Well, this one was about the, the curse of hipsters and gentrification.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's the case too. You know, I saw it in New Orleans. Like you, you just you wander these streets, and in the home next to you is a bachelorette party, and in the home down the street are a bunch of frat guys, and something is definitely lost in the town when that happens. Because New Orleans at its best is you walk down the street, and there's a restaurant in this corner joint, and you wouldn't even know about it because there's no sign. Someone has to tell you. And, um, you know, and then the corner grocery store where everybody knows you, and then the bar where the same guys are sitting on the same stools every day. There's something to be said for that, and you don't want to lose that. So New Orleans is wrestling with it right now. It's a real issue because once every neighborhood is the hipster, then how, how is New Orleans different from any other city? What makes it different are its people. So you don't want to lose that. So she's fighting that, yeah.
0: In another similarity to Timmy Failure, Saint has a somewhat animal sidekick, not a polar bear like Total was, but a turtle named Dr. Rutherford B. Hayes.
1: First off, how many kids' books have Rutherford B. Hayes?
0: <laughs> One of my neighbors, when I was a kid, claimed to be a descendant of Rutherford B. Hayes. His name was no, Bert way. Hayes.
1: Yeah. I think he was from, was he from Pennsylvania? I want to say I went to his house. I think I went to his house. I think I was the only visitor. Um, Yeah, it just sort of made me laugh. It's such an odd thing for a kid to uh, name a turtle. I think the turtle's name was originally rocks because she found him at the bottom of a creek bed and his shell looked like another rock. But then he, the turtle, who is very well-read, insisted on this name. And I think it's Dr. Rutherford B. Hayes, which is even odder because Rutherford Hayes wasn't a doctor. That just made me laugh. I always think that the key to humor is incongruity. So I can't find the incongruity. It's probably not funny. So when you think of a turtle, I don't know, you think of something without a personality, it was just kind of a bump on a log, almost literally. For that turtle to be erudite and have these references and this huge vocabulary, kind of not what you were expecting so that just made me laugh. but also I love the use of the turtle because just like Saint and chance you know a turtle can go back and hide in its shell just like you know Saint and chance can go hide in their respective delusions or whatever it may be or creativity or um, I like that I like the idea of a turtle with its shell felt perfect
0: and Hayes was one of those many 19th century Ohio presidents.
1: Ohio, yes, I have not yet been to his house. Yes, it, yes, you're right.
0: Also, someone on the internet several years ago did a parody of Jim Davis's Garfield strip and put President Garfield in Garfield <laughs> the Cat situations, and that was pretty darn funny too.
1: See, yeah, that's funny. That's great. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> that's really funny. I like that a lot.
0: Do you think Saint is going to have further adventures, or has her story wrapped up?
1: Uh, I could go either way. This can stand alone nicely as a single volume. Part of me worries if you do sequels, you dilute the impact of that first one a little bit. But there is a second book that I have mapped out. I could see myself doing it. It's an Alice in Wonderland type tale where they end up losing their home in New Orleans. They go to, of all places, Phoenix, Arizona, could not be more different. And again, she's a latchkey kid, but now she spends the afternoon in the library playing with other kids, hiding in the stacks, playing hide and seek. Anyways, one day she finds this hiding place that no one has tried yet, which is in the air conditioning duct, but she falls. And when she falls down the duct and she hits the bottom, she finds herself in a whole different land. So in the same way that the first book is like a Don Quixote type story, the second one is an Alice in Wonderland type. So I would like to do the second book to explore that. But if I don't, it stands alone.
0: I could just see a gap in the books open up and just a smile being there from the
1: the Cheshire cat. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Yeah, so I do have a second one in mind, but I'm fine either way. This is one where the story is complete at the end of the first book, bigger stakes and all that. So I think I was conscious of that when I was writing Saint.
0: So when we last spoke, you talked about how comedy is rhythm. And so is that still something that you believe?
1: Oh, for sure. They are close cousins. I think that's part of the reason why I listen to music when I write. The example I always give, like if anyone doubts that this is the case, is think of a stand-up comic. I might have said this to you last time. He was telling a joke. When he hits the punchline, he misstates a word, but then he restates it immediately. So the punchline has been delivered. The joke is ruined. Why is it ruined? He still delivered the punchline. That's because it's music. It's no different than hitting the wrong note when you're closing out a piece. Like there's a rhythm. I mean, listen to Chris Rock or even watch how he moves on the stage. He's constantly moving in like this figure eight. Everything he says has a rhythm to it, a rhythm to it, a rhythm to it. Like it's music. It's music. So you can hear humor. You can hear an extra syllable, a misplaced word. They are close cousins. I don't know how that works, but I'm pretty sure it's the case.
0: Now I'm going to tell you a couple of quick stories here that kind of point to breaking rhythm is also important in comedy. The first story, it's about music. And I went to go see Robert Plant on the Now and Zen tour. And that was the first tour he was doing Led Zeppelin songs after the breakup of Led Zeppelin. Yeah, And he was doing Nobody's Fault. I mean, I was right in the front row at Barton Coliseum in Little Rock, Arkansas. had a microphone that had a long cable on it, and he was doing his moves around the stage. And he does a spin, and he stumbles, And then he looks up and he smiles and he says, nobody's fault, but mine. And that just took it to a whole different level because it wasn't what we were expecting. There was a mistake that happened. And then he uses the song to point that out. And it was just fabulous.
1: That's great. What a moment. That's very cool. I love that.
0: And the second one, have you ever seen the old Tonight Show clip? Buddy Hackett is on the program with Johnny Carson. And he asked about the secret of comedy.
1: I think I've seen this to remind me. Okay.
0: So you play Johnny Carson. Ask me what the secret of comedy is.
1: Uh, what's the secret timing. Of
0: comedy? <laughs> so I was dating a woman. She lived in the DC area and I'm here in Memphis and we met in Durham, North Carolina. She was presenting a paper at a conference at Duke and we were wasting some time, went into a convenience store. And as we walked in, I said, hey, ask me what the secret of comedy is. And she goes, okay, Steve, what's the secret of comedy? And then I didn't say anything. And we went in the store, and we were just looking around, shopping, wasting time. And every once in a while, she'd come up and goes, Steve, what is the secret of comedy? And I wouldn't say anything to her. I'd just turn and walk yeah. off and go someplace else. And then we pay, and we leave, and I turn to her, and I say, timing. And she didn't find it funny at all. And that's why, yeah, we're the, no lo- that's why we're no longer a couple. But.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't I would wait until she was just nodding off that night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's why you're a professional. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, but you know what's funny? That Buddy Hackett thing, the thing about timing, if you think about that logically, so if a joke is just words, information given to you, if that's all it is, what does timing matter? Who cares? Pause an extra second, whatever. It's just words. I'm going to give you the words. The same as if I taught you about Andrew Jackson, I'll still give you the information. So it's obviously not that. It matters how you say it, the rhythm in which you say it. That's music. That's a very clear example to me. Like it had, And I think that's probably yet another reason why I listen to music when I write. Yeah, I hear comedy. I can hear an extra... Se- My son has that ability too. Like I'll have him read the strips or the book, and he'll point out the syllable that's not needed or ending on the wrong word or bearing the, the word that carries the punch in the middle of the sentence instead of ending on it, you know. So just all that stuff, it's all rhythm related. And if you don't have it, sort of like speed in the NFL, like you can't teach it. Like you're either born with that or you're not. You can hear it. And on a good day, I can hear it. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'll watch TV commercials. And I'll hear, you know, they're meant to be funny and they'll deliver the line. And I'll go, oh, you didn't need the word very. If you had just said blah, blah. Like, <laughs> it's like this curse. You go through life like it's really funny. And then when you see someone who's just brilliant, like Zach Galifianakis, when he does Between Two Ferns. You ever seen Between mm-hmm. Two Ferns? That to me is the height of comedy. He just interviews these people next to a fern and he always goes out on the exact right moment. And you can just tell that's a guy who can hear it. Like he can hear every word that's needed. He comes across as casual, but that is really thought out. That is brilliant. His level of brilliance is stunning.
0: Yeah, the first time I really was conscious of, hey, the timing is the thing, was watching Dr. Katz, the animated show. And, yeah. and H. John Benjamin just had such superb timing in that show. It was crazy.
1: Isn't that funny? It all comes down to that timing. Yeah, it's really, it's amazing. Someday somebody will do a study of what comedy is, but I know time, I know, I know there's a connection to music. I just am not a good explainer of it, but I...
0: It's about defeating the expectation. I think there are a lot of elements of comedy beyond timing. I think timing is integral. It's it's one of the things you have to have, but it's not the only thing you have because otherwise music would be hilarious. But it's like with the Buddy Hackett joke, you're setting up an expectation of, you know, here's a question format and this is how people answer questions. And of course you interrupt that. And that's the the break of the timing is what makes it funny. And those pregnant pauses and then something incongruous said after the pause, you know, it's those pause, you know, it kind of heightens the expectation. So I think you establish a rhythm and then you put in variations on the rhythm and that's where the funny bits lay in the variations on those rhythms.
1: Yeah. There are examples, but not very many of the opposite, I suppose, but really it comes down to incongruity. Because, for example, when Hackett does that and he jumps on the question, he answers like quickly and awkwardly, what you're expecting is a normal conversation. And that's how a talk show interview goes. Question, pause thoughtful answer. So when Johnny asks the question, he jumps on the question and almost talks over the last word of it. That's not what you were expecting. That's an incongruous like method of speaking on a talk show. So a pun is an incongruity. You expect a word to go one way, but it's actually this other thing. If I can't find the incongruity in something, it's probably not funny. So I'm always working on that. Like even the, you know, like the crocodiles in my strip Crocodiles thought of as menacing and fierce and a great predator, but mine are lame. Mine can't do anything. They can barely function. So you're always you're always looking for that. Or or like, remember when John Belushi was the dry cleaner? Was he the dry cleaner? Did he have yeah, or a sandwich shop? And he was a samurai. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was. Sandwich shop, and and he'll slice the bread with the sword. Like he's both sandwich shop owner and samurai. And those don't go together. Or you think of the skit with Belushi at the Greek diner, they practically tell the customer what they're going to order. You know what I mean? Like cheeseburger, cheeseburger, Coke, no Pepsi, or whatever it was like that. That's not how restaurants go. Or the soup Nazi, like you're there to be served, not to be yelled at, like in Seinfeld. Laurel and Hardy or Chaplin. One key part of that comedy that people overlook is look how they dress. They are gentlemen. They are businessmen. They are dapper. Now, they, they may have holes in the clothes, but in their minds, they're something special. Neither Chaplin or, or Laurel dresses clowns. They're not that. They're important. Then the comedy happens, and that's an incongruity. It's also why clowns are generally not funny and thought of as annoying, because they lead with it. Like, here's a guy dressed silly who does silly things. Not Chaplin, not Stan Laurel. So that goes to the root of comedy. Or Ricky Gervais in The Office thinks he's a rock star, best boss in the world. He's a doofus. So I'm always looking for that incongruity. If you can't find it, you probably don't have comedy.
0: But my favorite incongruous line from the book was, but next year is a million years away.
1: You know, it's fun when you write and you surprise yourself sometimes, like with a line that you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's the beauty of writing. It's fun to just discover things and hear what the character says. And there's a moment in Saint, I can't remember where it was, might have been in the toy store. She did something and I remember thinking to myself, oh, there you are. Now I hear you. I think I created you at first, but now you have your own life. And now I feel like I'm just watching. Kind of a weird thing to say, but I've heard other writers say that too. They listen to their characters. If it's a good character, you should be able to hear them. That's the magical part of it. I wish everybody could do this for a living. You know, Maybe they can, or should at least try. But it definitely feels like when it's going well, that you're touching something bigger than yourself. It's a cool feeling. Yeah, I love that.
0: So I think I've decided for myself, it doesn't matter what you think, what Saint's father's name is.
1: Oh, what's her father's name? George. What's that come from?
0: St. George is the saint who defeated the dragons.
1: Oh, brilliant. Of course. There's icons of St. George in all of the, uh, I'm I'm Greek, so we have Orthodox churches and him slaying the dragon. I should have known that. Yeah, of course. That's great. I'm going to steal that too. (laughs) You're just writing the second book for me. This is perfect.
0: Ah, You know. Just I'll I'll send you an invoice.
1: (laughs) That's fantastic. I love that.
0: And there's one other thing, you know, I'm I'm kind of a a nerd. I like to look up names and their meanings. And I saw that Timothy means one who honors God and who honors God more than a saint.
1: Ah, that's brilliant. Oh, that's funny. I never heard that about Timothy. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I love that. Can we just meet next time before I write? <laughs> <away>? <laughs> just need my co-writer. That's fantastic. That's really good. I love that.
0: One more silly question before we wrap up here. The most recent treasury of your strip, Pearls Before yeah. Swine, is called Pearls Seeks Enlightenment. So uh, what wisdom have you gleaned yourself recently?
1: You know what I've learned the last five years has been about for me? sounds simple, but it's hard is to just be in the moment. I think when you're younger, your life has these grand plans, but really all your life is is a series of moments. And stealing a page from Zen Buddhism, I have learned that for me, happiness is being in that moment. So by way of example, there is a little dog who lives across the street from my studio, tiny little terrier. When he sees me, he runs to my porch because I'll feed him. (laughs) And his name is Levi. And I feed him some days. I'm super busy and I think, nope, this is a moment you should sit in and be happy and peaceful. You always have time for Levi. So I sit down on my porch and I feed him his food pellet by pellet, you know, and I listen to him crunch. It's very satisfying, earnest sound. He's so happy. He's got his food and he's crunching real hard. And that's my example. Uh, being in the moment. It's silly, but it's kind of not. You don't live your life all the years at once. You live moment by moment. There really isn't a tomorrow right now. All you have is this moment. So it could be as simple as saying, hey, I'm healthy. I'm sitting here in the sun. This is nice. Or some days when I go to draw, I say to myself, hey, you could have been a lawyer right now, but you get to just think of these silly ideas and draw and make people laugh and then go to their cities and talk to them. What a great thing that is to just recognize that. And that's what I've learned.
0: Also, I remember you said your books, you tend to write them on a summer break. What did you do with your most recent summer break?
1: I wrote this travel book. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And went to Cambodia and Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam. Talk about being in the moment. Bathed an elephant, sat in the front row of a Muay Thai fight, went to the Buddhist temples and got the blessing from the monk. What a great, great series of moments. Yeah, it's pretty wonderful. I'm very lucky and I know how lucky I am because I had a job that I hated and now I have something that I'd love to do. I try to always remember that. Yeah, I think that's a big change for me.
0: And for our Memphis audience exclusively, you are going to be appearing in Memphis at our bookstore novel. When is that coming up?
1: That is going to be on... October 21st, 6 p.m., I will be at Novel talking about looking up and the latest Pearls books and taking questions and signing books. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, Saturday, October 21st, Novel. All right. I
0: hope everyone comes out and has a great time with you.
1: Thank you very much. It's always fun to talk to you. You are arguably the most brilliant interviewer I get to. (laughs) it's It's pretty fun. It's always a challenge, always makes me think.
0: Well, I think that's more of a function of your publicist than me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's fun. It's fun to talk to you.
0: Well, it's always a great time talking with you, Stefan. Thank you again for spending some time with us on Book Talk.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Stefan Pastis is the author of the novel Looking Up, published by Aladdin, an imprint of Simon and Schuster. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for
1: joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.